Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello and welcome back to another episode of America's 360. I'm your host, John Molesky, and this program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, as we reach the end of the calendar year and the dawn of 2022, we thought it would be a good opportunity to ask our panel of experts to take a brief look back, but also a look ahead. What's on the horizon? Help that maybe they can help us flag the stories they'll be watching in the months ahead. So with that in mind, let's bring in our roundtable. Please say hello to Latin American Program Director Cindy Arnson. Hey, John. Brazil Institute Fellow Daniela Campello. Hello. Mexico Institute Director Andrew Rudd. Hi, John. And Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands. Hello, bonjour, John. I want to welcome all of you back. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. Uh, Looking forward to hearing what you have to say. And, you know, as I said in the introduction, this is an opportunity pretty much freeform to tell us what's on your mind. What are the issues you're tracking? I know the Wilson Center has an annual publication called On the Horizon, and all of you have contributed to that in one way or another. So perhaps some of there will be some overlap between what we talk about today and that document. But if we could, let's start in the uh, the snowy north uh, with Chris Sands. Chris, uh, what's the word from Canada? Well, it's going to be an interesting year. We ended 2021 with a new government in Ottawa that has uh, made the very important decision to adjust its fiscal approach to the COVID fight and begin ramping down uh, benefits that were uh, initially sort of emergency benefits and then recovery benefits to help workers who weren't drawing income because of, of the pandemic. A lot of economists have been saying in Canada that that has dampened uh people going back to work and getting back into the regular economy. And so we're looking now at the beginning of sort of the tapering off of those benefits and hopefully uh, a downturn in Canada's unemployment rate. Uh, There are labor shortages in a number of parts of Canada and and people will put out a vacancy and not be able to fill them. So there is growth potential, but they need to get those bodies into those jobs. And that's the first big thing. The second big thing is Canada spent so much on COVID recovery that it's now um, facing the twin dilemma of running out of money, raising taxes, or potentially um, facing inflation, much as other parts of the hemisphere are. And this is the number one political issue. It's it's the issue on which conservatives and liberals and others are divided, because whether you taper back spending and then cut taxes and keep on the same fiscal level, or whether you increase taxes to pay back the benefit on a more aggressive scale and borrow less, These are the kind of decisions that are really animating Canada, at at least around the COVID fight. A second big challenge is climate change. Canada is committed to net zero by 2050 and has made the commitment to to meet um, their goals as aggressively as possible. And their main tool is increasing the carbon tax, which is currently at $50 a ton to $170 a ton, Canadian, mind you, but not U.S. dollars. But still, that big an increase has a huge impact on other countries, particularly the U.S. and Mexico, because Canada has also talked about border adjustment fees, which are allowable under the USMCA. But that would mean that 
they'd be adding costs to ex exports into Canada um, in order to equalize so that they can protect their own competitiveness, their own firms with those higher prices. But watch, as the border goes back to normal, you would see a lot of Canadians coming across the border so that they could buy products without having to pay a border adjustment fee. And at a time of inflation, something that big in terms of taxation has a huge potential economic impact. So from one end to the other, it's, it's an economic story for Canada in the year to come and in the year we've just passed. Maybe one last thing, John, just because I'm thinking about it, China. Canada has come out of the, the you know, deadlock they were in, having arrested Meng Wanzhou, the Huawei executive, on a U.S. warrant. And now she's returned to China, and China has returned the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, to, uh, to, the, uh, to Canada. The problem now is, how do you rebuild a relationship with China that has been damaged by this incident? And a lot of Canadians don't trust China. I think the government would love to see some outreach. But that's going to be very, very hard in the current environment. So I think China, in some ways, is the sleeper story of the year, but may, by the end of the year, turn out to be a, a pretty tough one. Andrew, you have a question for Chris. Chris, um, I'll, I'll ask you the, the obvious question uh, coming from uh, the other side of the U.S. border, if you will. Maybe you could just say a little bit about uh, North America, the North American Leaders, Leaders Summit, and, and how that fits into Trudeau's plans. Yeah, I think I think it's a fascinating dynamic. We we were so pleased to see North American Leader Summits come back, and often um, I think Canada and Mexico, I think some cases as well, prefer the bilateral dialogues with the U.S. because you can talk about all you have in common, and it's it's just the two. But in the trilateral context, I think both Canada and Mexico have been somewhat uncomfortable. But at the same time, Canada has been reassessing its its view of the Biden administration, concerned that politics in Washington make it hard for the Biden administration to address some of the big pressing challenges they have. They're very concerned, for example, about subsidies in the current uh, congressional legislation for electric vehicles that uh, might only be available to vehicles made wholly in the United States. That's something that Congress has to decide. It's very hard for Canada to weigh in on. Um, they're also, they've also been concerned about line five and pipelines. Well, the, uh, the interesting thing for Canada is I think they've started to see Mexico as a potential ally on these issues and that Canada plus Mexico carries a bigger, uh, weight in Congress and elsewhere than just than either country by themselves. And that's what we've all been waiting for, for the North American triangle to be more of an equilateral triangle rather than an isosceles one with the really short end being Canada, Mexico. And so there's some potential there. And I think the North American Leader Summit was a positive step in that direction. And it's the first one we've had since 2016, but definitely uh, put Canada more in mind of what's going on in Mexico and the region. Chris, when we uh, pulling from the what could possibly go wrong file, is there one area that is of particular concern for the Canadian government? Uh, well, I think that one of the concerns really is that the U.S. has seen stronger job recovery growth, um, whereas Canada, Canada's not only been slower because of what they've done on the labor market side, it's also Canada's a heavily commodity-driven economy. And it, so we started 2021 with a discussion of critical minerals, which Canada has in some abundance. But one year later, we still aren't seeing them pulled out of the ground. There's a lot of talk, not a lot of mining. We've seen oil prices at you know, quite impressive levels, uh, around $80 a barrel. Canada has plenty of oil. But because we didn't get the Keystone Pipeline, because Line 5 is under threat and Line 3 is under threat, they can't sell it. And the only market they can sell to is the U.S. So they, they sell at a discount. So as commodities start to become important, that's part of the recovery of the global economy, Canada has them and can't get them to market. And when you look at 
the terrible weather in Vancouver, their whole West Coast market, uh, their West Coast ports have been seriously constrained. Uh, similar uh, will be the case in, in the East because of snow and bad weather. I think Canadians are worried that there's a great opportunity for recovery and they won't have access to it because they don't have the infrastructure to get where they need to go. So the sleeper story there and the problem with infrastructure is you can't build it overnight. It, it's going to be a long term problem. Yeah, right. Long. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. Andrew, let's turn to you and get your thoughts. Sure. Thanks, John. Well, you know, 2021 marked uh, with a new U.S. Uh, administration a chance for sort of a reset in the U.S.-Mexico bilateral relationship, which under the Trump administration had really focused initially on trade and then ultimately really only on migration. And the Biden administration has tried with some success to broaden and reinstitutionalize that relationship. The creation of the reestablishment of the high-level economic dialogue in September and the high-level security dialogue in October, and then the, the NALS, the North American Leaders Summit that Chris just mentioned uh, in November, were, were really the reconstruction of three longstanding institutions that hopefully provide areas to resolve both bilateral and trilateral issues, of, of which there are many. Um, some related to USMCA, some related to common challenges uh, and common opportunities. So looking forward to 22 in the area of, of common uh, challenges, first, uh, I think has to be migration, which is an issue that uh, the Biden administration came in trying to, and, and did in fact change some of the uh, Trump administration policies. But of course, we all remember the surges of migrants and, and the way that the issue has become politicized here in the States. Uh, migration is going to be an issue for U.S.-Mexico in 22, and um, Cindy and Daniela will probably talk to this a little bit as well, but it, it's an issue for the whole hemisphere um, and something that we'll all have to watch. Um, another shared challenge for U.S. and Mexico relates to security uh, in terms of, for example, uh, Drug trafficking, um, the flow of, of fentanyl north, for example, using precursors from China, the flow of drugs, uh, uh, sorry, of, of guns and money back to Mexico. Those are issues that are critically important. Um, and, and then um, institutions, uh, democratic institutions in Mexico, which are under a lot of pressure from the current government, budget cuts, uh, criticism of academic freedom, issues like that, that really uh, are, are starting to call into question the strength of Mexican democracy. Not entirely different than what we're seeing here in this country, for that matter. I, I wonder, you know, in the U.S., when you talk about projections and trend lines, you often see uh, public opinion surveys about how optimistic or pessimistic people are about the future. And we've seen contradiction in that regard in the U.S. We've seen Fairly healthy economic recovery combined with fairly negative uh, opinions about the future. Do we have similar measures in Mexico? What can you tell us about the zeitgeist? You know, it, it's interesting in Mexico because it, it sort of depends on who you talk to, which, again, is not different than than here. I think the current government, the Lopez Obrador government, is, is very optimistic uh, about where they're going with their fourth uh, transformation in Mexico and very confident. Uh, but if you talk to a lot of folks in the business community, for example, you get a slightly different perspective, a lot of concerns that Mexico is not going to capitalize on the opportunities that may come from reshoring or what is sometimes referred to as ally shoring or friend shoring 
And much of that ties to the proposed energy reform, which will lead to higher electricity costs, uh, as well as putting challenges on Mexico's ability to meet its climate change commitments. Thanks, Andrew. Daniela Campello is next. Your thoughts? There's no way to talk about Brazil to next year without talking about elections, right? So we'll have uh, presidential and legislative elections in the country, and they will happen in the middle of a lot of polarization, political polarization, and in the middle of an economic crisis. So Brazil has the fourth highest unemployment in the world. Incomes have fallen sharply after the uh, cash transfer program of the government ended. We are in an with the levels of inflation that matched 2020. Three was the last time we had levels of inflation like this when Lula uh, was charting his government. So central bank will have to keep rising interest rates in the year of elections, which is always very uh, nervous. Uh, I would say that one that there's a major concern, of course, about uh, political instability. I think Bolsonaro has shown all the evidences that uh, he will try to fight to remain uh, in office, especially because he is absolutely sure that he will have problems with the law after he leaves. So uh, the more the lower his popularity is, and it has been declining sharply recently, I think the higher the incentives for him to mess it up. So he has, after three months of some kind of calmness, he has been moving back towards talking against the Supreme Court, uh, against uh, the electronic vote, and uh, like going back to his original discourse. And this is what we should expect next year. One concern I have is that beside, not only Bolsonaro, but the other candidates of what some people call the third way, which is Sergio Moro, the judge of the Lava Jato, he has also been pointing out... Uh, has been criticizing the Supreme Court in, in very similar ways to Bolsonaro. And that this, the, the only reason for that is that the courts had overruled uh, his decisions in the Lava Jato process. So we have two out of three candidates who are going to question uh, and challenge the Supreme Court in the electoral year. So I think that should add to, to a lot of political instability. We shouldn't expect an easy path next year for Brazil. How stable is the electoral system in terms of the confidence in counting votes? Absolutely. It, there's a lot of confidence and there was never anything that would point to to fraud or any claim, mm -hmm. claim about this. I think this is one, uh, uh, that's the way that Bolsonaro is dealing with the fact that he's most likely going to uh, lose the election. But the thing is, not only he believes that, but some military that support him also believe uh, that the Supreme Court favors one and another candidate. So this is the kind of thing that, that should be of a concern. It's not only him. He represents groups of people in Brazil that uh, question the, the, the electoral uh, vote and question the, how solid the Supreme Court is in ruling uh, elections. So that's, that's so much like much like what we've seen here in the U.S., where th there's no except for the fact that the military are a big question mark in Brazil. It's not like uh -huh. the U.S. So that we don't know exactly. Not even specialists know exactly how far the military would go uh, in this adventure. But the fact is, he has control of at least a part of the military. That uh, thing. It's not. It's not that he created this uh, story about the electronic votes. This. This was a belief among the military, and he represents. This belief. So in that sense, I think it's a major concern compared to the U.S. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, Cindy Arnson, you're next. And Cindy, we sometimes, you know, joke behind the scenes that based on your portfolio, that you have many nations to cover. And But I want to acknowledge that publicly, too. We really appreciate what you do for the team and that uh, you have the broadest section of geography to report on and you do a great job of, of, of with it. So thank you for that. Great, John. Thank, thanks for that. I, I think that one of the main stories from the 
Latin America, Caribbean region as a whole, um, is to look at the very sort of intimate relationship between rates of vaccination and economic recovery. Um, the latest figures from the World Bank predict that growth in 2021, you know, 6% and change is not even enough to make up for the losses in 2020, the first year of the pandemic. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but one of them has to do with um, the lack of vaccines until very recently throughout the region. It's, it's uh, really notable to point out that um, earlier this month, the Pan American Health Organization, which is the regional subsidiary of the World Health Organization, um, said that 20 out of 35 countries in Latin America and the Caribbean had yet to reach the target of having 40% of their population vaccinated by the end of 2021. So that gives you a sense of uh, where Latin America is. It's obviously in a much better place than, than Africa, uh, where you have less than 10% on average. But there's also just this huge variability, not only in economics, but also in politics. I mean, a country like Chile has about 84% of its population vaccinated. Uruguay, 76%. Guatemala, only 24%. You know, so there's a great deal of, of variety. And I think what that has contributed to um, is an enormous frustration um, of average citizens against traditional parties and against incumbents. And you see that um, in the electoral outcomes thus far, not uniformly, Ecuador somewhat of an, uh, of an outlier. Um, you see it in the kinds, the, the implosion of the center, if you will, um, in, uh, in Chile with the traditional parties of the so-called concertacion, the center left and center, and, and then also the center right parties that had occupied uh, the political space since um, the transition uh, from dictatorship. Um, you see increasing authoritarianism um, in countries that already were headed in that direction, Nicaragua being the most extreme case where an election was held in November with all, every one of the leading candidates, you know, behind bars, uh, which is really an extreme case. Um, Venezuela, similarly, um, regional uh, mayoral and gubernatorial elections um, in which, you know, the um, the Maduro regime is contesting um, one of the governorships that the opposition won, one of three that the opposition won. Why? Because it's the, the birthplace of Hugo Chavez. So there's going to be a do-over and nobody has any doubt that it that that, that election will go, you know, towards the uh, the official candidate. Um, uh, El Salvador, similarly, attacks on civil society, on independent media, um, um, undermining of judicial independence, firing of judges or prosecutors, Guatemala, you know, totally extreme in terms of the crackdown against prosecutors who had been looking into cases of corruption, very, very well-known cases of corruption, um, the dismissal and, and exile, really, um, uh, of the people that were in the forefront of that search. So it's been a, a a really difficult and if not ugly time um, in many countries of the region. Obviously some good news stories, Uruguay, Costa Rica, as they always are. Um, some bright spots, the digital economy, um, a renewed interest in, in greening the sources of, of energy, uh, but still a lot of economic pain, 
by a region that had become more middle class um, in the decade of the 2000s, the commodities boom, now those hopes are dashed. And I think the mood of the electorate is just surly and dissatisfied and um, willing to take to the streets um, and, uh, uh, and, and protest on, you know, in, in really sustained ways. Cindy, is the is the main impact of of that dash those dashed hopes? Is it uh, where governance meets the pandemic, or is it impossible to separate it out? Well, it's it's difficult to separate primarily because 2019, which was before the pandemic, also saw a huge burst in in demonstrations mm-hmm. in social unrest in Chile, in Colombia, in Peru, in Ecuador, um, in Brazil, uh, Venezuela. Um, and it was very hard to tie it. it. In fact, it was impossible to tie it at the time to COVID, but it was possible to tie it to a period of very low, mediocre growth so that the kinds of gains that the middle class had experienced, that the working class moving into the lower middle class, all of those gains were being eroded um, at the same time that, you know, prices were were continuing to rise and whatever. So there was just a lot of frustration going into COVID. Um, the initial lockdowns kind of pushed it all underground for a while. And now it's just, you know, in full, full bloom, um, not only in the streets, but in the polling places. Daniela, I know you want to say something about growth potential. If I may add to what Cindy just said, uh, there are two factors that matter a lot for economics, especially in, in South America, which is American interest rates, which we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but there may be a chance that they rise in 2022. That's very bad news for uh, South America, Latin America in general. And the fact that commodity prices that rose 27% in 2021 are expected by the MF to drop 1% in 2022. So this help from abroad is not going to happen in the next year's uh, in the region, which is of major concern, I think. And I would point out, I think we should keep an eye on Chile's constitution, right? That it's going to be uh, the, the final draft is going to be in mid-2022. An eye in Peru, that uh, there was a first attempt at impeachment of the president, and this may be not the last attempt at impeachment, so we should see more instability. And even in Ecuador, with the state of emergency, that lasso will not have a chance of renewing because of the constitution, but we don't know exactly how he's going to respond to that in face of low popularity and a lot of resistance in the Congress. So uh, difficult years ahead. Andrew Rudman, I think Andrew has a question for you, Cindy, that I think has application uh, globally, perhaps. Uh, Cindy, as you were talking about the the protests and and demonstrations, I mean, do do you think that the frustration is a threat to the democratic institutions, or is it just a demand for different leaders to run those institutions differently? Well, I think you see both trends. Um, Daniela mentioned, you know, the the constitutional reform in Chile, which is a direct response to the demonstrations that began in October of, of 2019. Um, the newly elected president of Honduras, um, Sir Omar Castro, has also called uh, for a new constitution. Colombia, of course, which has seen lots of protest over the last, uh, you know, year and a half, two years, um, had a, a major constitutional reform in 1991. So you don't see it as much um, in, uh, in in the Colombian case. So I think it varies a lot. But it's certainly um, a, a frustration that is taken out by the population on um, the traditional parties, 
um, and traditional figures of what is referred to in Latin America as the political class. So uh, there's a lot of move towards outsiders, as we saw with the election of Bolsonaro um, that many years ago. Um, but you also see a doubling down by governments that were already authoritarian or wanted to be more authoritarian, um, really feeling that they can take these moves with impunity, um, that there is no cost, you know, dis dismissing uh, prosecutors who were looking into big corruption cases or just dismissing, you know, the Supreme Court and the attorney general as, as Bukele did in El Salvador, um, because really what's the, what's the counterweight? And, you know, some would argue that, that China and Russia are, are there in the background, but it is true that there are lots of different options for those countries that want to opt out of, you know, receiving U.S. assistance. It's just not as persuasive a tool as it was even a decade ago. Well, on that cautionary note, we're going to end this discussion. Uh, Cindy, Chris, Andrew, Daniela, always a pleasure. Thank you, not just this week, but for all your contributions uh, on America's 360 and beyond your work at the Wilson Center. It's a privilege to work with you and to learn from you. And whatever happens in the new year, we're happy that we'll have all of you along to help guide us through as we sort it out. Happy New Year. Uh, this episode of America's 360 was produced by Oscar Cruz, Cecily Fasanella, and Zoe Reed, and Sam Caney-Menez. In addition to thanking our outstanding production team, we want to thank you for listening with the hope that you'll join us again soon for our next episode. And until then, we wish you and yours a most happy and healthy holiday season. And as always, thank you for your time and interest. For America's 360 and the Wilson Center, I'm John Molesky. We'll see you next year. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit WilsonCenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.